Father, may the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. At movie theaters all over the world, Mary Poppins has returned. Imposing, wise, magical. She appears from the skies to set things right. Why did you come back after such a long time, Mary Poppins, she is asked. For the same reason I came the first time, she answers. To take care of the bank's children. Read in there, you and me. Here is a supernatural figure descending from the sky to take care of souls in need. And all of our hearts are warmed. Because inside each one of us, if we're honest with ourselves, there's a part that knows we need help. This is, of course, not to push it too far, but it is a variation of the Christmas story. Mary Poppins comes to help people who have lost their way. Every fairy tale, every dream of a better world depends for its power on the truth of the one great story that God has written over human life. It is the story in which every human soul participates, whether they know it or not. However, all the lesser tellings, all the lesser stories are not the same as the great story. They all fall short. They stop before getting to the greatest problem and the only satisfying answer. Mary comes not like Jesus, but like Socrates. She descends from the heavens, parasol in hand or full skirt flapping in the breeze, to help people remember what they've forgotten and to unlock the wonders of childhood. Make no mistake about it, as Disney paints them for us, they are wonderful. New York Times movie critic... Mandela Degas describes the new movie as Disney's most recent retelling of the lost mother myth. Mary is a guide and instructor that opens eyes, direct paths, and instructs souls. She's a teacher, but she's not a savior. That's why at movie's conclusion, she returns to the skies. Her work is done. That's why at the end, she can leave us. But according to the Bible, Jesus never leaves us. He promises to be with his people always. He is the wonder he has come to show us. He doesn't point to something, anything really, other than himself. He is himself the answer, he is himself the gift. And my assigned topic this morning was watching and worshiping. I was allowed to go anywhere I wanted to in Scripture. I didn't get back to Bryce with the Scripture, and uh, the Scripture he selected was where I went. There are other places to go, but is there any place better with the words watching and worshiping than the story of the Magi? Matthew 2.12, one of the verses Willis read to us, is after coming into the house, the Magi saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Now I want to suggest that most of what we think we know about the Magi comes probably more from Christmas card artists than from history. 
A hundred years ago or so, scholars were certain that the story of Magi coming from the east to Judea to inquire about the king was far-fetched. But today we know that many of the intellectuals of that time were astrologers. We know that the New Testament was written much closer to the events than we uh, thought uh, a century ago. We also know that astrologers of the day believed, and I'll quote, when a great king is about to be born or about to die or dies, something in the heavens will speak about it. It happened with the death of Caesar. A great, a great star in the sky, and it was the most famous event in the ancient world at that time. We now know that there was a tremendous feeling throughout the ancient world that something was going to happen, something needed to happen, some ruler, some leader, some king was going to be born that would change things. In light of all this, we now know that it makes perfect sense that astrologies, knowing about the great ruler that was anticipated in the Hebrew tradition, might come and ask, where is he? The challenge for you and me this morning is to ask that question ourselves and to be startled anew or for the first time by the answer. Where is the one who we need to make sense of it all? Where is the one we can cling to? Where is the one that gives purpose to life? Where is the one that can change things significantly, permanently, eternally? Where is he? Only when we ask that question with all our heart and soul and mind and strength are we prepared possibly to hear the answer. He is here, born in a manger, where the hopes and fears of all the years are met. So, given my charge, what makes the Magi wise these two millennia later is that they were wise enough to watch. They knew what is close to the best of what human reason unaided can give us, that there's something rotten in the state of Denmark, and it has to be set right, it has to be made right, it can't be made right within the human condition. And so they were watching. The world's wisdom can take us only halfway, to can recognize a problem, but it can't give a total solution. There's a wonderful eatery in Ross, the Half Day Cafe. I hope most of you have made, I hope all of you have been there. It gets the name, of course, because you can get breakfast or lunch there, but if you're looking for dinner, you're out of luck. It's only open half the day. I think that's something like the best of worldly wisdom. It senses, it, it, it knows that something is wrong. And it can give some preliminary helps and answers, but it can't get all the way. That's why the wise men were watching. That's wisdom. The hopes and fears of all the years were met in this child in Bethlehem. There's some conjecture here. Uh, For sure, the wise men didn't follow the star of Judea. They saw a star and they came and they asked, Where is he? And the uh, Pharisees and the judges and the Hebrew scholars of the day from the Hebrew scriptures, from Revelation said, in Bethlehem, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Nowhere does the text actually say they followed the star. On a dark night, have you ever looked up at the stars, you're traveling along and they seem to go ahead of you? 
I think that something like that happened. They went to Bethlehem because of the revealed word of God. Now the text does say star stopped and who knows. Uh, there's one commentator. I, I don't subscribe to this answer, but I like it. I don't think this is probably right, but there's a suggestion. That maybe there was no star at all. Maybe it was the, just the light and glory of the Christ child which stopped and drew them there. If you go to Palestine, if you go to the Holy Land, and you have to have kind of appreciation for 3rd, 4th, 12th century Christianity, the holy spot. So we're at the, at the birthplace of Jesus that's the church of the nativity. And you go in and you can see through all the layers of tradition and building. There's a, there's a circus about this big. It's a circular piece of glass that looks down at what we're told. I don't think there's any reason to question the tradition. They, they look down to the bedrock rock on which the manger lay, but it's emanating out from that circle of glass that you peer down through, not too far, about that far, is this sterling silver flaming cross. It's the star we see. Watch for him. So the text says they came to Jesus, then it says they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Brothers and sisters, human beings are incurably religious, even in this post Christian, even in this um, um, what else are we? Post modern world. We are not atheists. We're incurable worshipers. The question isn't whether if you're going to worship it, it's what you're going to worship. Klaus Schmidt, a German archaeologist, spent 12 years excavating a site in Turkey. It goes by the name of Gebekl Tepe, something like that. It's Turkish. And it means rather ignominiously uh, pigtail hill. But at that site, he has found a, a worship place, larger, really, in, in, in some ways, uh, more impressive than Stonehenge, that predates the pyramids by 7,000 years and Stonehenge by 6,000. And he, is, he has advanced a theory, which is the minority view so far, but... He had advanced the theory that turns other theories on its head. Rather than civilization sort of emerging and agricultural forms and communities coming together. Let me read. Uh, This is from a Newsweek article, 2010. It was the urge to worship that brought humankind together in the very first urban conglomerations. They need to build and maintain this temple. So rather than civilization getting together and becoming religious... According to Schmidt, civilization emerged because of the religious need of humankind. The need to build and maintain the temple, he says, drove the builders to seek stable food sources like grains and animals that could be domesticated and then settled down to guard the new way of life. The temple began civilization, began the temple. Whether or not that description is true or not, it is true that as much or more than homo sapiens being thinking beings, we are homo 
religio. We are worshipping beings. So the question is not if, but what. Is it your family, your reputation, your success, your security, your job, your meaning in that, whatever it is. It's important uh, that we understand the identity of people we are dealing with. The identity of human beings, knowing about them, helps us know how we are to relate to them, how we, what we are to expect from them. Sorry of a man who uh, retired, and um, I'll call him Jim. He, after two months, he was climbing the walls. It wasn't all that he thought it was going to be. So he went down to Walmart and applied for a job as a greeter. He got it. And he stood erect. He, he greeted everybody that came in warmly, with respect. Everybody thought he was the best greeter they'd ever had at Walmart, except there was a problem. He always showed up late, 5, 10, even 15 minutes, and every day, well, some of the time. So finally, his 26-year-old boss called him in the office and said, we really enjoy your being here. Do you enjoy your work as you do? We'd like to keep you here. But, you know, there's a problem. You're always late. You know that, John? I do. Uh, were, you, were you late in your previous work? Yeah, pretty much I always was. Well, where was I? I was in the Army. <laughs> well, what did they say when you showed up late? Well, they usually said, good morning, General. Here's your coffee. <laughs> the identity of who we're dealing with means a great deal about what we should expect and how, how we should relate to them. So, uh, I don't know why the wise men worshipped the Christ child. But I do know, and I think I'm charged in the text to say why the Bible tells us we are to, and there are two reasons. So here's the rest of my outline. Because the Christ child is the eternal God, and because he is the incarnate God. Jesus is the eternal God. This is as plain as day, as plain as day throughout the New Testament. It's it's clear in the Old Testament too If you can read back and see it, it's there. It's like a trailer for a movie. It tells you what's coming. Sometimes it's annoying. They put some scenes in the trailer that aren't in the movie, and that's really what got you interested. But not in the Old Testament. It's it's a trailer for coming attractions. Or or put better, it's kind of of like a, a sketch artist. And sometimes, I think maybe even here, we've seen, and they sketch it out piece by piece, and whenever that happens, I look, I peer in, I want to be the first person to see what's emerging, and there's this one time, my gosh, 45 minutes, I couldn't make heads nor tails, it was completed, it was a complete mystery. You remember this? And then he turned it upside down, (laughs) he painted the whole thing upside down at the face of Christ. That's sort of what the Old Testament is. It's clear if you see it backwards, it's there, but it's crystal clear on the New Testament. Um, John chapter 5, the Father is always working, and so I am working too. Those who heard it were just infuriated. You're calling God your Father, making yourself equal to Him. They understood completely what was being said. Those who honor the Son, Jesus said, honor the Father. 
This is an extraordinary confession. The New Testament writers just think it's par for the course. John 1, one, of course, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Thomas, who is called Doubting Thomas, I think he should be called Believing Thomas, one of the two great explicit confessions in the Scriptures. He is invited to see uh, the wounds. Maybe he touched them, maybe he didn't. The Scripture doesn't say what it does say. is He bows down and says, My Lord and my God. Romans 9. Jesus Christ, who is God over all. Titus 2, chapter 11. Waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 1, 1. Uh, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is God who is eternal. Christ is eternal. Christ was incarnate. God became man. It's the whole ball game. It was a remarkable idea. God manifests, clothing Himself in human flesh in space and time. He is the eternal God. You were chosen from before the foundation of the world. John 17. Father, I desire that these might have the fellowship that we have before all time. The doctrine of the incarnation is compelling and beautiful and biblical sense, biblically sensible and salvifically necessary, but it is nevertheless inscrutable. And that's okay. Because the incarnation finally is not so much for analysis as it is for worship. Jesus is the eternal God. Truly God, truly man. Jesus Christ is the incarnate God. Christian Century Magazine, for all the years of my memory, and that's over half a century, (laughs) has had a recurring assignment called uh, How My Mind Has Changed. And people are asked to write in these essays, if I were asked to write that essay, how my mind has changed since I served with you just three, four years ago, it would bring us up to this very precise point. When I was with you, I celebrated the Christmas story as the beginning of the great story that culminates in the cross and resurrection. I looked upon Christmas as the safe, soft beginning. That was important largely because it would lead to the great climax of the story. Of course, Christmas, or more technically the Incarnation, is part of all that, I thought. But it was important primarily only at the beginning of the great events that would culminate in cross and resurrection. I no longer believe that. I now recognize how amazing, how incredible, how important is this first step. J.I. Packer calls the Incarnation the supreme mystery. I think it should better be understood as the supreme miracle. The New Testament brings this into stark clarity that God himself has wrapped himself in human flesh that he could come among us. This is the contention of the New Testament writers. We've heard them, Emmanuel, God is flesh, God has come. The really staggering thing about the Christian claim is that Jesus Christ was 
God made man. That the second person of the Godhead became the second man. Determining human destiny. The second representative head of the race. And just as Adam had rebelled and failed. A debt that could only be repaid in kind. Athanasius said he had to become what we are. That he could carry us to where he is. So a debt could only be repaid in human flesh. The new Adam. The faithful Adam. The one who replaces disobedience with obedience. We are saved by the death of Christ. Yes, it is amazing. We are also saved by the life of Christ. It is here in this thing that happened at the first Christmas that the profoundest and most unfathomable depths of the Christian revelation lie. I now believe that the greatest miracle is not the cross or the resurrection, but the incarnation. The Word became flesh, God becoming man, the divine Son becoming a Jew, the Almighty appearing on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is as fantastic as is this truth of the Incarnation. Charles Spurgeon puts it this way, infinite and yet an infant, eternal and yet born of a woman, almighty and yet nursing in a woman's breast, supporting a universe and yet needing to be carried in a mother's arms, heir of all things, and yet the carpenter's despised son. Puritan Thomas Watson puts it this way, That man should be made in God's image is a wonder, you and me. But that God should be made in humanity's image is a greater wonder. That the Ancient of Days would be born. That he who thunders in the heavens should cry in a cradle. Or almost everyone's favorite Christian writer outside of the Bible itself, St. Augustine, puts it this way. Man's maker was made man, that he ruler of the stars might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on its journey, that the truth might be accused of false witness, the teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life might die. This is the incredible gift. All other miracles stand in service and are played out of this first great incomprehensible miracle. One unfathomable mystery. God becoming man. Creator entering creation. God wrapping himself in human flesh. This is the astounding miracle. Dorothy Sayers is a British mystery writer, detective writer. She was a friend and contemporary of C.S. Lewis. I guess you have to be one to be the other. Her most famous detective character was Lord Peter Whimsey. He's kind of like a uh, more polite, aristocratic Sherlock Holmes. 
If you read Sherlock Holmes and the original Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, you know this guy was a wreck. I mean, he was just a mess. Well, Whimsy wasn't just like that, but he had his own problems, and he was lonely. Halfway through that series, uh, a woman named Harriet Vane appeared. She's a mystery writer, and she's one of the first female graduates of Oxford. Uh, it's clear what happened. Literary scholars don't even debate about this. Dorothy Sayers, although she was married and happily married, she loved her character, Peter Winsey. She knew that he was incapable of saving himself. So she wrote herself into the story to help him, to change him, to save him. And Whimsy falls in love with her. They married and she rescues him. That's the Christmas story. God inserts himself into the story of his creation that he wrote to rescue us because he knows that we can't change ourselves. Even if we knew the problem, even if we knew how to do it, he knew we couldn't. That's what sin means. We are wrapped in sin. We are imprisoned. We are bound. We are lost. And so from before the foundation of the world, put your mind around this as an anchor. I live most of my time. I live most sort of day-to-day, present, present, my happy world. But how's my present? What's happened today? How are things going for me today? Here's what Scripture asks you to do. You are to anchor your present in this unfathomable, unending foundation of the world in which you were loved before the foundation of the world and which extends into eternity. That's the life of believers in Jesus Christ. And your present is to be informed by that. God wrote himself into the story, the infinitely wonderful, achingly beautiful, inscrutably wise God of the universe wrote himself into the story. Why? For you. That you might enjoy him forever. There's no one else in the world that loves you that way. There's a difference between uh, being loved by someone that needs love back. And we are all kind of partly that. We do need love back. But there's something strong about someone uh, that just loves you. No matter what you do. That's a foundation. Parents love kind of bubbles over. I, remember, I couldn't even understand it growing up. My mother said, Johnny, I want you to know I always love you. Even if you go to, go to prison. Like your future friend, Willis Rice. <laughs> and I remember being a kid, that's crazy. That's crazy. I'm never going to piss in. That's not going to be me. Now, of course, I've grown up. I realized everybody, for the grace of God, could easily. Is it? There's something about this in a healthy marriage where people are secure of the love. They don't need to find love of that kind of love from another gender someplace else. It's secure. And it's a great gift for all of life. You've been loved that deeply by the God of Christmas. Do you see that? You are invited to be so profoundly captured by God's affections. C.S. Lewis writes, it's like a diver that goes down and, and grabs something that seems to be of no value at all and brings it up gripped tight. That's you. That's the Christmas story. This is a remarkable idea. Jesus coming for us. A beautiful picture of Christ's pursuit 
of the lost. If you've never been loved like this, what is your faith and hope in? If you've been invited by someone uh, to this church, you are not being invited here so people can point a finger and say, you know, you need to be a better person and we'll show you how to be a better person. We're not about the task of taking your morality. You know, you come here with one. We're going to, re- we're going to give you a package another re- rallying. We'll sort of swap it out. Why we are gathered here is because we have been captured by this unimaginable, unfathomable love. God has inserted Himself into a creation that everything can forever be changed. Emmanuel is here. What is the motivation? Our redemption comes from Christ. He leaves glory for you. It's a remarkable idea. I I don't even know how to get my mind around it. I don't even know how to begin to think about it. We talk a lot in churches like this about the sovereignty of God and the outlandish, untamed capacities of God. So let's just think about that with respect to His affections. We've already named healthy parents whose love just bubbles over and they give it to their children. We know about friendships, lifelong friendships, and we don't have that many, but those that we wrap them around you because your hearts are bonded together. Can you imagine what a life would be like by a lover who is untainted, untarnished, who isn't fallen, whose life is pure and powerful and infinite? That's the Christmas story. You have been loved with a love like that. God's love is presented to us as a picture of a heart that is so eternally passionate that it boils over from before the foundation of the world. He inserts himself into creation for you to love you perfectly and completely. So this Christmas season and every day of your life, your call is to watch. And if you see that that has happened, then to worship the one who has loved you with this unimaginable love so that he can bring you home. Living in Holy God, we confess that we have been worse than we can possibly imagine. But that we have been loved with a greater love than we could have possibly hoped for. The Christmas story is all about that. Father, may we capture souls here, bring them home, and change us eternally and forever by the power of your love. In Jesus' name.